This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, I'm Angela Barnes, and I've just snuck on here to tell you that We Are History, the less than serious podcast hosted by me and John O'Farrell, has joined the Podmasters gang. And this is great news for us, because not only are Podmasters purveyors of excellent podcasts, but neither John or I have ever been in a gang before, so we're obviously thrilled to bits. We Are History's seventh series will be launching very soon, but if you can't wait, you can listen right now to our entire back catalogue of 80 or so eclectic episodes. We bring you the most interesting stories we can find from the past, so have a listen if you'd like to know whether Vlad the Impaler's anger issues really earned him that nickname, or how a notorious family from Essex ended up declaring an independent country on a platform in the North Sea. Or maybe how a dead homeless Welshman changed Britain's fortunes in World War II. So that's We Are History. It might not change the world as much as the Black Death did, but it is a little bit funnier. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Start Your Week. I'm Jacob the First, newly crowned King of the Bunker. Here with me today is one of our dear and loyal subjects, Hannah Fern. Good morning, Hannah. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I don't know how I feel about being your subject, though. <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, you'll get used to it, just as we'll all get used to Charles, I'm sure. He's, uh, <laughs> he's great. <laughs> Hannah, I'm, uh, I'm, although I just did it, I'm almost bored of taking the piss out of the coronation, which is a strange feeling because I do love taking the piss out of stuff. Is it finally nearly over? Do I not need to hear any more about this anymore? God, I hope so. The bunting feels like it's going to be gone by the end of today, surely. <laughs> People will yeah. be taking it down. I'm definitely, definitely over it. Um, I only managed about two hours of the main event on Saturday, and I only really watched it because uh, I wanted to show my children it because it felt kind of historically important, if yeah. utterly tedious. Um the weather didn't help and the turnout interestingly wasn't what people were expecting even along the kind of main route which i read was shortened because turnout was less than it had people been in. previous yeah exactly and even then when they were cramming people in it was only a few rows deep rather than the kind of huge crowds that we uh, used to see for the the queen yeah god knows. i mean if we can make the special relationship back to being a little bit special that wouldn't necessarily be the be the worst thing but who knows uh, on things that stood out to to me uh, how do you feel about the idea of prime minister penny mordon after she got so much praise for being very very good at holding that massive sword that she had to hold <laughs> do you know what it reminded me of Eddie Izzard, the comedian used to do a stand up joke in the 1990s about um americans singing the national anthem and in that gag um there was a reflection on the fact that 70 percent of what people react to when they see someone speaking or singing the national anthem or whatever in public is how they look and only 20 percent is how you sound and 10 percent is what yeah. you say so the, the truth is you know she did look great this is why i think fashion does matter when people question if fashion's a load of old nonsense this kind of thing she picked a banging outfit looked like a real yeah. statesperson um and so that's something we've obviously lacked for a while. Um, and, you know, even Starmer, we've all called him government in waiting or whatever. He has his moments of lacking states personalliness as well. So yeah. um, 
obviously it's very easy to look like a statesperson when you literally don't have to say anything. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not coming from nowhere. She was the opponent that Labour really feared when they were re-electing a leader. So the sort of meaningless but I suppose generally positive reaction that people had to her means that she almost certainly is the next Tory leader, I would say, which is a weird thing after just carrying a sword. <laughs> I'd quite like to see her and Starmer sort of trying to one-up each other in more and more garishly ludicrous <laughs> outfits. outfits. <laughs> just gold on top of gold on top of gold, sort of but everyone looking like David Bowie for a little bit would be uh, <laughs> would be quite something. It would stop the whole boring Starmer narrative. Oh, yeah, it would cheer like everything that. up a bit. <laughs> Obviously, there's been this sort of side of the coronation which has been very tedious and, you know, something to poke fun at. But there was a serious aspect over the weekend of the arrests of protesters, which, in a word, was grim, really. Can the Met just, just ride this out? It really feels like the Met are just trying to sort of create enemies in as many corners of society as possible. It's just an example of what a dysfunctional and sort of hateful organisation it is. Um, can it ride it out? It's an interesting thing. This was the first test of the new legislation around yeah. protest. And I know there's still an investigation going on, so you have to be careful what we say, but it does look like the classic approach of use the legislation to lock up first, avoid a situation, and then sort of ask questions and release people who are completely innocent later. Um, so that, that is not democratic policing. It looked really, really un-British, I think, on a what you might describe as sort of a quintessentially British weekend. They are trying to ride it out. The defence, I don't know if you spotted this, the defence that they used was that everything passed off smoothly. So, I mean, that's really frightening. That's sort of pure totalitarianism. And actually, that isn't coming from government, though the legislation is awful, but from the police themselves. So I guess it's up to all of us uh, whether we just let that slide. Yeah, this kind of utilitarian approach to policing that they're going, oh, well, it, it it was for the greater good actually doesn't really fill me with any variety of confidence whatsoever to say, oh, well, yeah, so those people suffered from that potentially, but it was for the good of everyone else who was there. That's, to me, not really a way that the law should be should be doled out no that's i mean that's not their purpose at all you know their purpose is to is to um you know make sure that the law is enacted but in a fair and just way and that is not fair and just is there any chance of a full-on inquiry into this or do you think it's going to get swept under the i think it will get swept to be honest because People are going to move on. There's so much going on in the next few weeks um, in in Westminster. There there are a lot of excuses for the government to use to just kind of sweep over it. The interesting thing is if the Met continue making public errors, you know, it might be more difficult for the government to get away with that. Should we look to see that the government might change its mind in any way on these protest laws, or is this going to entrench positions, basically? Because as you say there, the police's logic of saying it passed off smoothly would appear to me to be, well, then the government is going to say these laws did what they were meant to, and collateral damage and anything. I think I really very sadly sort of think and suspect that it will entrench positions, because this sort of nothing occurred defence isn't as unpopular as I would wish. Um, people do think that yeah. the pra- practicalities are not the bigger picture 
matter. And I, I think it's really similar to terror legislation in that sense. We, the public, let all kinds of horrors through on terror legislation because of this argument that the, the bigger picture matters more than the, than the way we you know, enact the law. Um, yeah. But what's lost just to have the coronation go off without a hitch? That's the question I'd urge people to ask themselves. Yeah, yeah. I saw on uh, on Facebook over the weekend a sort of bit of arguing between you know random family members as you as you see and <laughs> Always. someone yeah yeah exactly and someone just said about the someone said about some protests have been arrested and I saw another family member comment saying well you know does that really fill you with any confidence that they can't protest against this and they said oh well you know they were they were making a nuisance of themselves they were outnumbered and so the police just didn't really have very much choice and I was like yeah. What? So you're saying there wasn't very many of them and they were just being annoying? Yeah, I mean, that threshold is so low now. The threshold is basically being slightly irritating, um, which is, that's not democracy. The, the right to irritate is surely something we should stand up for. So moving on, uh, last week, the, the local elections were were worse than the Tories' damage control briefings even suggested they they might be. You know, the We might lose a thousand seats and then doing it seems to me to be quite embarrassing, really. How are we going to see parties manoeuvre now, moving forward? I think the thing to remember about the local elections, it's, it is exciting if you're you know, a Labour voter or, or centre-left leaning to see this, but they're only an indicator of feeling. They're not actually in any way an accurate reflection of voting intention. Obviously, you see the success of minority parties and independents and so on. So, you know, in terms of how they're manoeuvring, actually, this is even worse for the Tories when full tactical voting comes into play. So they're going to have to avoid that wherever possible and really focus their efforts on, you know, Lib Dem risk seats. That sort of bring back Boris thing, which began to emerge uh, in the immediate aftermath, I think that could have troubled Sunak for longer, but it didn't um, because the coronation sort of ended that conversation before it even got going. So that, I think Sunak's very yeah. lucky that, that that happened and he won't have to contend with that bit of um, manoeuvring as well, personally. Labour are obviously going to be looking at areas where they expected a higher swing and didn't get. So the councils, there are quite a few councils that are now in no, no overall control instead of perhaps a return to full Labour control, which they might have hoped for. Some of those in the whether we call it blue wall, red wall, I don't know what we call it these days, but up, you know, in that area of the country. Um, so that's that's probably going to be their focus, I would say. With this talk of hung parliament in the air, are the Lib Dems and Greens going to start flexing some muscle or would that be very ambitious? I've seen quite a lot of news stories just with Ed Davey as the focus. Yeah, he's which, everywhere, isn't he? Yeah, which Ed you don't Davey normally says. see. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it sort of, to me, seems like that would be, he's not the most exciting... Oh, poor old Ed Davey. I I think he's a very honest, decent chap that doesn't, (laughs) he's boring. So again, so he doesn't really get the airtime. I think they will try and use this. And I do think that's a little bit behind the kind of Ed Davey says uh, news coverage at the moment. It's also due to the fact that news organisations are listening to them again, because they are starting to have some kind of um, political influence. But it is all quite meaningless until you're actually in a negotiating room post hung parliament. And I don't think there will be a hung parliament, actually. But even if there was, I find everything in the run-up really, I know there'll be backroom conversations that we're not party to, but all the stuff in the press, which is from Labour saying, we definitely won't have any you know, formal agreement with the Lib Dems if it means keeping the Tories out, you know, of course you have to vote Labour, there's no alternative. That's nonsense. If there was an actual hung parliament, 
of course there would be a Labour Lib Dem coalition. Of course. We aren't stupid. Voters aren't daft. We know, you know, keeping the Tories out is a priority to both those parties. And we know that the Lib Dems will never again agree to any kind of formal relationship with the Conservatives because they were so badly burned by it last time. So, um, yeah, it makes sense to shore up the progressive vote, I guess, by flexing those muscles a little bit, um, yeah. making it look like you're ready to work with Labour. I think that's all we can say about that. Uh, Parliament is returning this week. What are you keeping an eye on? There's so much going on at the moment. Obviously, immediately tomorrow, there's Sunak's first PMQ since the local elections, and you can kind of expect him to meet a very emboldened Starmer. So I think that's definitely worth watching. In terms of legislation, there is the levelling up bill, the online safety bill, and the illegal migration measures are all in the Lords. So they're all controversial, all likely have significant amendments placed by the Lords. So that's definitely one to watch. And then in the Commons, um, the Tories are likely to throw out changes already tabled by the Lords to the Energy Bill. Uh, and those amends were about requiring a ban on new coal mines, which... Uh, the conservative majority is likely to chuck out. How depressing is that? You know, that seems the simplest measure that you can put in an energy bill at the moment to really make sure we're heading towards 2050, but apparently not. Um, so that might probably go back and forth for a while. But the really big one that um, no nobody who's heard me regularly on the pod will be surprised here is that I'm very excited to see that the Renters Reform Bill will finally be published this week. This has been anticipated for years and campaigned on for, I would say, decades, to be honest. And it's basically legislation that beefs up tenants' rights uh, including getting rid of so-called no-fault eviction where somebody might make um, a request to their uh, landlord for a repair, a uh, very basic repair, could it actually be quite a significant repair, like a major leak in your shower or something, and then find that they are told to, they have you know a few weeks to, to leave because the landlord doesn't want to bother paying any money to repair. Um, so these are very small concessions to even out the kind of power relationship between uh, renters yeah. and, and landlords. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Suella Braverman is back facing criticism, as she always seems to be at the moment. The Home Office is under fire over how it's handling Sudanese refugees. What's going on there, Hannah? So it's accused of racism, basically, saying that the um, there's a, a kind of categorization of need uh, between Sudanese refugees and Ukrainian refugees, with those from Sudan treated very differently to those who are arriving from war-torn Ukraine. Um of course, there are no kind of safe and legal routes for Sudanese to um, to come through, um, particularly for unaccompanied Sudanese children as well, which is really hard to think about. But actually, it is blown up now, I think, because people have really got their eye on Brahman and the Home Office. But this is not unusual. And if you talk to anyone who's handled the situation with housing Afghan refugees here, it's been the same for them, the same for Syrians. You know, Ukraine was treated differently. Ukraine was allowed homestays and that whole project to to make sure that there was a home for every Ukrainian who came to the UK. Uh, you know, Homes for Ukraine was a huge government-backed project. 
campaigners working with Afghans and Syrians both tried to get something similar off the ground for them, and it was categorically refused. So there, there is evidence that that there has been a very different attitudes towards Ukrainian refugees to those fleeing other conflicts, and it doesn't take a long leap to suggest there's some kind of you know systemic racism involved. Is it just, uh, you know, obviously basically a failing department here as well, though, that we're seeing, I mean, more widely removed from this specific even, it would seem to me the Home Office is just failing on every single front, isn't it? I mean, I do think there's a there's kind of two questions. There's the bigger question of the Home Office isn't working well at all. And to use that horrible old phrase, not fit for purpose. I mean, it hasn't been for a long time. It does need reform and it does need sort of potentially breaking up into different sections. Um, but I do think there is more to it than that, and I, I, you know, I don't know whether I go so far as to use the word racism as as those who are speaking out about this are. But there's definitely been a kind of willingness and enthusiasm around housing ro- white Ukrainians that there hasn't been put into other rescue efforts. Certainly, once people have arrived here, there's been a very different um, attitude and a very different management process for Ukrainians than others. So that I mean, we, we should ask those legitimate questions about that. Finally, on domestic stuff, uh, in Broken Britain Watch at the moment, what is going on with pharmacies and pharmacies apparently just being something that can replace GPs, apparently? Now, this is my favourite story of the weekend in terms of inept government. So the latest sort of prong in government's attempt to claim that it is going to be the saviour rather than, in fact, as it is the destroyer of our NHS, is a plan to take the pressure off GPs by using the skills and you know accessibility of pharmacies great idea brilliant idea loads of people go to the GP when they don't need to pharmacists have got loads of knowledge um, that they could share and they, you know brilliant way to spread the burden however we've got the lowest number of pharmacies in England since 2015 which is of course since we had a conservative government um, more than 400 have closed in the last year. So how's that going to work? This is just classic nonsense, again, where it sounds great and it is a good idea, but if you look at the practicalities, it doesn't stack up. It's very frustrating. And, and you know, actually, to be fair to those who want to point this out, not enough of the news coverage made that distinction this weekend. So they, the Tories got a load of free coverage about how their great plan, without anyone querying how that would actually work, apart from the, the odd outlet so you know people are left with an unfairly positive perspective on this that's frustrating yeah. uh, moving away from britain the the texas mall shooting over the weekend was another horrific act of gun violence in america which just feels like a sentence we can say every few days yeah. at the moment which is you know never never less depressing really what is what's going on with the investigation into this specific instance uh, so there was a 33-year-old guy, the male attacker, who was shot and killed at the scene. So he's not going to face justice for the eight people he killed and seven he wounded. Um, but the investigation into him and sort of his motivation has potentially identified far-right extremist ideology. Again, <laughs> that's obviously a really hard issue for the right-wing pro-gun lobby in the US to keep ducking because it just keeps on coming up and... You know, yeah. it's the same in the UK, I guess, in that Prevent has more referrals for hard right ideology than other forms like Islamist extremism now and so on. But in the US, they've obviously got access to weaponry. <laughs> and this is why this keeps happening. And, uh, yeah. you know, being emboldened by the Proud Boys, Trumpian factions, etc. doesn't help either. So that's a really tough one to grapple with. 
On another issue in in America at the moment, what's happening with the debt ceiling standoff? There's a meeting with uh, Biden and congressional leaders on Tuesday. How key is that to preventing this sort of economic meltdown, which has been forecast? It's really a pivotal moment. Um, So according to Janet Yellen, she's the Treasury Secretary, the US can't pay its bills. um, And that obviously, remember, includes all public sector wages by the 1st of June. So this is really imminent. And it's due to the nation's debt ceiling. You can call it artificial, whatever, artificial debt ceiling, if you believe that. And she thinks there's no good options except raising the ceiling. But Kevin McCarthy, who's the House Speaker, is demanding spending cuts in return for agreeing to Biden raising the ceiling. So he's using that as a negotiation tactic. And Biden's furious about that. He thinks that the threat of default shouldn't be used as a form of leverage in those kind of negotiations. So they're at loggerheads. And the meeting is designed to break through that. But, but, you know, behind McCarthy is a rump of radical Republicans who think that he should just refuse and let Biden crash and burn, even though the impact of that on the US economy would be absolutely huge and catastrophic. So the meeting is, is like kind of a crunch point in all of those negotiations and what comes out of it. I think it's unlikely that there'll be no impact on the economy, even if they do raise the ceiling uh, in the short term. Now, interestingly, I read when I was researching about this is that some US economists are now saying, let's just scrap this ceiling altogether. It was created in 1917. It was useful at the time. It's outlived all usefulness now. And I think lots of us watching this spectacle might agree because, you know, this is like, you know, public sector wages just not being paid because of a political row, basically. Yeah, this standoff seems to happen all the time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, happened under Obama and yeah. yeah, so it would seem to me if there's a way to to scrap it, cuz it's just this, you know, the adversarial way that the American system is set up that there's always going to be someone there's a check to power but can just block things and that is what this seems to mm. be constantly. So yeah, I mean, I'm I'm no uh, economical mega mind, but it would seem to me like there must be a better way of doing this really. It does feel like that. Uh, finally, looking to Ukraine, there seems to be a lot going on with drones at the moment. What's happening there? So Putin's next big push has been to launch a kind of drone swarm against Ukraine. There have been four attacks in eight last eight days in Kiev. You know, this is a, a, apparently ahead of an expected Ukrainian counteroffensive. So he's sort of um, uh, starting a pre-attack on the on the offensive they're expecting from the Ukraine side. The background, I suppose, is that Russian troops, um, together actually with a private military company they've been running as well, have been trying to capture Bakhmut for months but still haven't broken through. So it does seem to be in complete stalemate at the moment, but it does leave to the question of where this is all going to end because it could go on for a very long time at this pace, I suppose. Hannah, thank you for joining me for Start Your Week this morning. No problem. Thanks for having me. If you enjoy The Bunker, remember you can support us on Patreon and get episodes early and ad-free for just £3 a month. You'll also get a shout-out and start your week. Here's Hannah with today's. Thanks so much to Hilary, Kath Moore and Simon Pritchard. Thank you for joining us for Start Your Week. Come back tomorrow for another edition of The Bunker. The Bunker was presented by Jacob Jarvis with Hannah Fern. The producers were Liam Tate and Kasia Tomasevich. Audio production was from me, Robin Lieber. Art by James Parrott. Managing editor, Jacob Jarvis. Group editor, Andrew Harrison. And the music is by Kenny Dickinson. And The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Listener.